Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, uh, just a quick check-in. Um, we are going to be covering Acts chapter 16 today, and uh, Acts has 28 chapters in it. So at the beginning of this class, when we talked about, you know, what what kind of Bible study is it that you want, a really uh, big overview or really, really in-depth, you sort of didn't want either of those, but wanted something in the middle. Um, but kind of part of that was that maybe a class that's, you know, 15 weeks or something like that. Well, this is like week 15, I believe, of the study. So we're basically going about a chapter a week. Occasionally I get bogged down, but uh, the average is about a chapter a week. And you've kind of now been sitting in on a number of the classes. And so, you see, we don't necessarily go word by word of the entire section, but try to pull out big ideas, try to connect things both forward and backward. We try not to get lost of where we are in the book of Acts. Um, so that's kind of where we've been. And if you have feedback that you want to uh, give to me about, no, we, we should go slower or you're going too slow, we want to go faster, just let me know and well, I'll try to adjust. But again, because the book of Acts is not really like any of the other books in the New Testament. We're pretty familiar with the New Testament books. There's a lot of books in the Old Testament that you probably are very unfamiliar with, and you would be basically starting at zero. With the book of Acts, you guys have some pretty good knowledge, but the sections that you know of Acts are pretty hit and miss. They kind of are places that we jump around in the book of Acts, especially at the beginning. We're very familiar because of Pentecost. Um, you, you know those. We hear those readings in church. You know about um, Paul and his conversion, and maybe you know a little bit about, about his travels, but, you know, we're in the midst of his travels right now, just going to be starting a second missionary journey, and to think about, okay, how, how did all of those travels work? What was the sequence of them? When, when did he go to this place? And, you know, what was his rationale? That stuff probably all just is kind of a mess that's jumbled together because a lot of the places you couldn't place on a map. You know, this is, this is not a strong area of our ge- geographical skill set. But we're kind of putting some of them up, try to learn it, uh, Again, the, the test will be at the end to see if you can complete the map and follow all of the missionary journeys in the right order. But we're working on it. We're studying. We're gradually going to be getting there. So, again, if you have feedback that you want to let me know, please don't hesitate to do that. Um, I can change. I can be taught. Um, again, it's my inkling. Of, well, because there's so much here, I'm more likely to go slower than faster 
uh, because some of these things, like, wow, well, I don't want to skip that, or that's that's kind of cool. I hate to jump over those things, but if you really want big picture, we can go faster on some of these things too. All right, so where we've been, we're in Paul. Uh, we're in his life, and he has become the focus in the book of Acts in the latter half. Because, remember, the big picture of the book of Acts is Jesus' command to his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to all of the ends of the earth. And so we've already made it outside of the the environment that now on a map looks pretty small, but this is where Jesus lives. This is where Jesus grows up. Uh, this is where Jesus suffers and dies and rise again, rises again, and this is where he sends his disciples out as those apostles. But then we heard about Caesarea a little bit, which is still kind of in the area of Judea, and then Antioch. We hear about how Christians are gathering there and the church at Antioch is kind of doing some new and big things. In Judea, the gospel is going out not just to Jews, but to Samaritans, to the Ethiopian eunuch. It's going out to the Gentiles. But in Antioch, where we're now pretty far removed from that Holy Land area in Palestine, you're in a much more cosmopolitan area and it just it becomes almost natural that people who believe in Jesus as their Messiah but are surrounded by all kinds of different people with all kinds of different beliefs are still going to bring that message to them. And we heard about how conversions happen and Gentiles, the Greeks, are receiving the gospel at Antioch as well. Jerusalem hears about it. They send Barnabas up to check it, check it out. Barnabas is like, yeah, this is really happening. Barnabas stays there in his teaching, but he realizes that the task is too big for just himself because there are so many believers. And so he calls his friend Saul, Paul, who is in Tarsus, to come over to Antioch and to help him out. And then from there, we hear about how the Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas, the church in Antioch, uh, call Paul and Barnabas to go out on a journey. And they do. The first missionary journey starts from Antioch, and they go to Cyprus, which is the home of Barnabas, and they share the gospel there, east to west, starting uh, on the eastern side and going to the west. And then from there, it seems that they're going to be headed to Antioch. It's a different Antioch, which is confusing. We call this the Syrian Antioch because it's in Syria. It's not on here, but we call this Pisidian Antioch because this is an area known as Pisidia. So they go from Cyprus to Antioch and they share the gospel message there, starting with the synagogues, but then when they find conflict and are rejected, Paul and Barnabas have, they don't even apologize. They're going to also bring that gospel to the the Gentiles. And then from there, we hear about how they go to Iconium and Lystra and Derby, And then Derby kind of marks the end of that. And then they go back and head to Antioch. And that's the first missionary journey. So Cyprus, around and then back to Antioch. They get back to Antioch. They report about what's happening, how the Jews have um, received the gospel. Also, how there's been some conflict. Paul, remember, is is beaten um, in Lystra, stoned, and um, 
he probably still bears some of the scars from that. So uh, people are like, did it go well? It doesn't look like it went so well, Paul. And he has a chance to be able to tell them, especially the good news, that, that the Lord has opened a door to the Gentiles, a door of faith, so that they too are hearing that message. And then when they're reporting that, we have that new conflict that seems to spring from Judea that people come up and say, wait a second, you, you're you bringing Gentiles in and they're not being circumcised? They're not following the laws of Moses? They're, this is not right. And Paul is fuming. And so they go to Jerusalem to kind of, let's get this settled once and for all, even though we've kind of thought, didn't they have it settled? And that's Acts 15. When that's over, they go back up to Antioch to report back. Okay, all of the apostles, the elders, we at Jerusalem all got together. We talked about this issue. We've come to the definitive conclusion that all that is necessary is faith in Jesus. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, and you receive that salvation freely. They also talked about, but if you're a Gentile, realize that there are some Jewish Christians that have been following the law of Moses all their life, and so these issues might be sore points with them, and so don't, don't like rub this in their face, you know, that, oh, we can eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Do you know why? Because those idols have no power. They have no power over us, and it's good meat, so let's enjoy that good meat. And the Jews would like, wait a second, it looks like you guys are worshiping at those idols again. And they'd say, no, no. So be careful about all of that stuff. They brought that word back, and it came in the form of a letter. It also came in the form of uh, men from Jerusalem to verify that what Paul and Barnabas were saying, what that letter said was true, that this was the unanimous conclusion of the church in Judea, and this issue settled. But they want to bring that news elsewhere as well, I think, because Paul experienced that conflict when he was on his first missionary journey of Jews and Gentiles. How do, how are they going to come together? How is there going to be a unity? Not so that we have the Church of Christ, the Jewish Church of Christ, and the Gentile Church of Christ, but it's all one. So I think because of that, Paul and Barnabas kind of want to get back out into the mission field to just get this message straight, to get it out. And so the Jerusalem Council leads to Paul's second missionary journey. But before they go out on that missionary journey, at the end of Acts 15, we find out that um, John Mark, who at first went on that missionary journey to Cyprus with Paul and Barnabas as a helper of sorts, once they got into Asia, this Asia Minor area, Mark went back home. And that's mentioned, but not really, we don't know why. But here it comes up again, because apparently Mark, who had been in Jerusalem, must have followed Barnabas back up to Antioch. And Barnabas wants to bring John Mark on this journey again. And Paul says, no way. And so this becomes a a dividing issue for these people. And they divide and conquer. 
So it, it actually turns into a, a pretty decent thing. Barnabas is going to go to Cyprus, back to his home area, and he'll take Mark with him. It's his cousin. They get along okay. So that's that's fine. So what could have been a really bad thing? The mission field is still open. Barnabas is going to go to Cyprus. He's going to return there, strengthen the church, encourage them, tell them about this message. Paul is going to take somebody new, Silas. And with Silas, he's going to embark on the second missionary journey. And in the second missionary journey, one of Paul's stated goals is to go visit some of those churches that he was at before to strengthen them. So those churches that have been planted, he's going to go back there. This time he goes back a different way. Because he's not going to go to Cyprus, he doesn't really have any need to, to, to go this way on the trip. So instead he takes the land route from Antioch, and this area is called Syria. This area here is called Cilicia, all seas, Cilicia. And then this area is called Galatia. So at the end of Acts, it says that Paul goes throughout the region from Syria and Cilicia to the cities. And then the first specific city that's mentioned, it's very likely that he went to Tarsus, but that's not highlighted. The first city that is mentioned, because he's going back to strengthen the churches, is the city of Derby, which is on the route that he went before, the final spot on his uh, mission trip to the east before they swung back around. So he goes to Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So he just retraces those steps. But then he wants to keep going. So these are the places that he had been. So the second missionary journey, he's first retracing the steps But once he gets to Antioch, he doesn't say, okay, we've been to all of these churches, let's pack the bags and now head back home. Instead, he keeps going. So this is how the mission field, the mission journey expands. And it's very interesting in Acts 16 that, well, it's hard to say. So the first missionary journey, it was very clear and deliberate how it started. We heard how the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas and how the whole church sent them out. And the second missionary journey seems, as Luke tells it, a little less deliberate. I don't want to say that that it was, you know, like the Holy Spirit was uninvolved, but it just it doesn't, it doesn't quite have the introduction. It just it sort of blends right in to that counsel from from Jerusalem, it just sort of blends in there. And actually, the next missionary journey, the third missionary journey, is going to sort of blend in even more. When Paul comes back and goes to Jerusalem, he's just, he's going to just kind of continue the cycle again, except not only will he visit some of the places that he was the last trip, he's also going to go to even more places than he had been um, before. So, Second missionary journey, it just, it starts a little bit different. Once he's at Antioch, I said, here's where things get a little bit interesting. And we do hear about the Holy Spirit's role in this. Because it seems that Paul's plan was to continue westward to Ephesus. But Paul talks about how the Holy Spirit says no. The Holy Spirit is blocking him from doing that. We don't know because Luke doesn't tell us much more what that meant, what form that Holy Spirit took. Was it 
that Paul just had a bad feeling about Ephesus? Was it that um, one of his workers said, you know, God, God came to me in a vision and, and said, no, this is not the direction that we're supposed to go? Um, we don't know what form that took. But what we do know, Luke tells us, is that it was from God. It was the Holy Spirit that said, nope, you're not going to go that way. So from there, they, they can't really go this way. They can't go see the, the places of the southwestern part of Asia Minor. So there's a couple directions left. They can go north to the Black Sea area. This is an area known as Bithynia. Bithynia. And okay, that's, that's, the mission field is wide, wide open. Let's go there. Except the Holy Spirit blocks that way too. Okay, well now we're running out of options. We can either go, we can't go this way, we can still go northwest, we can't go north, otherwise let's pack our bags and go home. Well, they don't try that route first. Instead, they go to this northwestern route to this city called Troas. And apparently the Holy Spirit was open to this route. We don't hear about anything being blocked or anything like that. But big picture again, once they get to Troas and are kind of like, okay, where do we go from here? Now, can we go south and head this direction and, and visit Ephesus and the cities that we want to? Or now can we go to, you know, they just, they seem to be figuring it out and piecing it together one stop at a time. If they had a big plan, it seems like they had to rip up that big plan several times and start over, uh, which is either really frustrating to us or can be very comforting as you've had big plans and it didn't didn't quite work out. When they're in Troas, uh, Paul has a vision, a vision of a Macedonian man. So this is uh, the area of, of Greece and the northern area of Greece is called Macedonia. And he has a vision of a Macedonian man who is calling him to come and help us. Okay, so... It seems, again, this is the Holy Spirit's way as they reason and talk about it. They don't just accept this at face value after he has this uh, vision. He, he talks about it with Silas. Okay, I had this vision. You know, what, what do you think this is about? What does it mean? Well, <laughs> sounds pretty clear. Sounds like we should go to Macedonia. And so that's going to be the next route on the trip. From Macedonia, they're going to go into some of the cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then from Macedonia, they will then go into Greece, okay, and visit those places. And by then, they're kind of, this is the farthest west they go on this trip, and they're gradually then making their way back home. So that's the big picture overview of the second missionary journey. It covers a lot of ground and territory, and because of that, I, I thought about, okay, can I cover it all in, in one session? But there are just too many unique things, too many stories. I didn't, I didn't think that we could quite do that. But you have the big picture of where they went and what they were doing. First, just to revisit the places that they had been. But then after that, it's very deliberate. We're going to new places. They seem to have some new places that they wanted to go, but the Holy Spirit said no to those places. So they are guided and directed by the Holy Spirit, even if the beginning of their missionary journey. Unlike the first missionary journey, we didn't have this grand hurrah and celebration and seem to know where this was all headed. So that's the big picture bird's eye 
of the missionary journey. The dates of it, um, again, this is kind of rough estimate. We don't know this for sure, but probably about 50 to 52 AD. So it lasts for a couple of years, probably. And uh, you know if Jesus died around the year 30, 33, we're now in the second, almost third decade after Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension. Um, so a lot is going on. There are Christians in a lot of different places, some of them because of Paul, some of them because of other apostles, other disciples of Jesus. Um, but Paul is still going to be breaking new ground on this missionary journey when he goes to some of these places. So this is, in in every respect, just as amazing as the story of the Ethiopian eunuch or the story of the gospel coming to Cornelius. The new ground is being broke and the gospel is getting out. And here, especially, once Paul is 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 headed this direction, he's getting farther and farther from all right, there are synagogues, and that's where we're going to work. He's getting more to the place of, there may or may not be a synagogue. Like, there may be Jews there, but there may not be enough Jews to actually constitute a synagogue. So he's primarily going to be dealing with Gentiles, and he's going to have to find a way to tell them how Jesus fits into what they think, or what they want, or what they believe about the, the spiritual realm in their life. So Paul has a very big job of being a translator of the gospel message. How does the gospel of Jesus translate if you're, a, if you're a Greek? How does it translate if you don't believe in the one true God, but you have many, many gods that you believe and worship? That's some of the, the tasks uh, assigned to him. So big picture overview of Acts 16 will lead us only as far as Troas. So I thought about throwing in the beginning of 17 to get us uh, Philippi, Thessalonica. No, we're going to get to Philippi, sorry. We won't get to Thessalonica and Berea. That's at the beginning of chapter 17. So we're not going to get very far in this missionary journey, but we'll, we'll get there and we'll do what we can. All right. So uh, in the big picture, I kind of covered some of the material from Acts 16. Um, so I'm going to kind of move straight into the first stops on his journey to Derby and to Lystra. Um, in Acts 16, this is uh, recalling Paul's previous trip to Lystra. Lystra was the city that he and Barnabas went to, and they were welcomed and hailed as the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. And Lystra was kind of depicted as this sort of backwater place, and Paul and and Barnabas didn't exactly speak their language, so there was some confusion of what's happening, but then the priest of Zeus comes and is bringing sacrifices to them, and so Paul's like, stop, 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 we're, we're just people like you, and then some of the malcontents from the other cities show up, and they're like, these people are bad. And the city of Lystra switches from honoring them as Greek gods to basically leaving Paul for dead uh, outside the city. So Paul goes back. <laughs> we would think Paul is kind of hoping, please, Holy Spirit, block me from going back to that city. Block me from going back to that city. But 
Paul didn't run away from persecution. So just because there was a threat of violence, that's not enough to stop Paul from bringing the message back there. Lystra is important the second round because here we learn about a guy named Timothy. Um, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's kind of depicted here as, as a, as a younger man. Uh, he has a Greek father, but a Jewish believing mother. And he seems to be somebody who believes this message and is fired up about it enough, you know, that Paul realizes that this guy could be helpful. Helpful in a number of ways, I think, because he's a native of this area and Paul remembers his past difficulties with some of the languages here. Boy, it'd be nice to have somebody a little bit more familiar who could stop some of these misunderstandings before they begin. Uh, he He's ready to bring Timothy with him on the journey as kind of a, an, a special helper, another assistant. Kind of, it seems, in the role that John Mark played in the first missionary journey. So he's not an apostle or anything like that. He's just going to be somebody that Paul seems to think is helpful. And it's very likely that along the way, there are other people like this. Sometimes they get mentioned, sometimes they don't. So if you go through the letters of Paul, especially at the end of the letters, uh, he has the sections where he talks about some of the people who are with him. Some names come up from some of these different cities. And it seems they come up because those people didn't just um, stay in those cities, but they followed Paul to various parts of the missionary journeys and they helped out. The reason I think Timothy gets highlighted is because for Luke, Timothy is going to end up having a very important role in the future. People knew who Timothy was. And so this is Luke's way of kind of saying, oh yeah, you know, you know, Timothy, he's, he's, he's a pretty famous pastor now. Um, well, this, this is where Timothy entered into the story. This is his background, if you will, and how he came to know Paul so well. One interesting thing that is added to Timothy's story is that Paul circumcises Timothy, which is very puzzling to a lot of people because in the context of what has just happened, when people were saying Gentiles must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, and Paul did not like this at all, why in the world does he just circumcise Timothy? What is he even thinking about that? Any thoughts or opinions? It seems like Paul's going backwards in his understanding of the gospel. Probably just to avoid a stigma on him or something. Okay. Like lack of better terminology, sell the gospel better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the the really big missing or not missing, but the the big thing to to focus on here is was Timothy required to be circumcised in order to know that he was saved? No. That that was not at all connected with what 
this circumcision was all about. He's already a believer. His mom's a believer. It is done in freedom. So freedom versus compulsion. When Paul got so irate and angry when in Antioch, people were coming and saying, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. They were putting a necessity on that and saying this was necessary to salvation. That's nowhere a part of Paul's message. So you can be circumcised or not. It does not matter. It does not affect your circum or your, your salvation. But it is possible, as Paul is going to be encountering a lot of very different people, that some might look at how he deals with Timothy and it offends them. Paul has experienced a lot of pushback from Jews. And if accepting Timothy, who's from a Gentile father, accepting Timothy as a part of his ministry as this uncircumcised young man causes doors to close to the gospel among Jews, Paul is willing to have Timothy circumcised, if that means open ears among these gospels. So it's a part of that principle of there is freedom under the gospel to be circumcised or not. And Paul thought it was strategic, I think, that Timothy would be circumcised, that this would cause less offense, that this would open more doors for the message of the gospel for that ultimate point of salvation. So Paul is not running around forcing anybody to to be circumcised, and that was not his message. But here it seems that it was beneficial, that it would help the gospel message. When Paul is going to come back to Jerusalem, we're going to see that he's going to have a similar instance of this, where as he's going to worship in the temple, people are watching him very closely because they know he's been a part of the Gentiles. Is he going to ignore all of the the cleanliness rules that we have or, or will he follow them? Is he going to come into the temple and, and bring the dirty Gentiles in? Or is he going to follow our rules? And Paul is very careful, even though it ultimately still backfires, because he's trying to ultimately leave room to proclaim the gospel message. He doesn't agree with them about necessity and whatnot, but he wants to leave room to proclaim that message. Say more, what do you mean? With uh, circumcision, things like that. Galatians 2, you know, they get Right. Yeah, and part of, part of that, yes, to an extent, we said that we weren't sure when Galatians 2 uh, happened in conjunction with Acts 15. Is that talking about the same event, or was it talking about an earlier event? But what is clear from both Galatians 2 and Acts 15, is that somewhere Peter did come under the influence of these Judaizers, the circumcision party, and he distanced himself from the Gentiles and showed more agreement to their point of view. But by the time we get to Acts 15, he's saying, no, I remember what that Cornelius episode taught me, that God shows no distinction, no partiality. Gentiles are full full members of the Church of Christ by their faith in Jesus, not by circumcision 
or, or anything else. So, so yeah, at one point in time, Peter did fall under that influence, but fortunately righted, righted the ship too. Okay, so Lystra, again, had a lot of bad connotations to it before, but a lot of good comes out of it because Timothy is going to join Paul from, from here on out and becomes a, a great member of his uh, ministry. From there, he continues on land. We talked about this, that he wants to go one way and the Holy Spirit blocks him. Another way, the Holy Spirit blocks that. Uh, the Macedonian man, some scholars are kind of intrigued by this, that he's just a Macedonian man. Uh, was he a specific Macedonian man? And if so, why does Luke not tell us? And one very, 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 very famous Macedonian man is this guy by the name of Alexander the Great. And so some people have speculated that that's the Macedonian man. He's, you know, he's, he's a recognizable uh, figure from art and, and what have you. He's pretty famous, even though this is 300 years later. And so people would have, you know, if seen him in the vision, but then it's like, well, why didn't he just say it was Alexander the Great? And why would Alexander the Great be summoning him to help them in Macedonia and is this really ma- you know there there's it that basically opens even more questions than it answers so that doesn't really seem like a good solution some people have said that the Macedonian man is none other than Luke himself um there's no way to prove this one way or the other. We're going to see that Luke does enter into the picture that here Luke um narrates the story by talking about we. So we hasn't been a part of the story. The story has been told in third person thus far. But now, all of a sudden, when we get to Troas and Philippi, we're going to hear about a we and an us. So the writer of Acts now includes himself. And then sort of by process of elimination, we can kind of pretty securely identify that who is the we, how did this become a part of it, that this we is there because it's none other than Luke himself who becomes part of the story. So our Macedonian man, a lot of speculation there, but um, probably just just take it for what it is. It is the Holy Spirit saying, this is the right way. Keep coming this direction, not that direction or another. Um Acts 16, 11 through 15 and continuing. Philippi becomes a big area. So they go first to Neapolis. This is the port. But then they go inland about 10 or 15 miles to the city of Philippi. This would have been all on Roman paved roads. So really very good traveling. Again, this is all about the fullness of time, that Jesus entered into the world under the Roman Empire. And this empire was was set for the mass transit, the mass communication. I mean, we look back at it and say, oh, it was pretty uh, inferior, not like our roads with all the potholes and road construction, nothing like that. But if you think about what the world was like before the Roman Empire, there were parts of the world that under various empires did have good communication administration. The Persian Empire was very well known for this, but the Roman Empire spreads it out even more across all the world in the Mediterranean, and that becomes a huge help to the gospel because they're able to get easily from one point to another to convey that message. The big thing that happens in Philippi is 
a lot of things. There are three different conversions um, that are highlighted. Now, we always know that there's a lot more that goes on than Luke tells us. So when he tells us something, there's probably a special significance to it. So at Philippi, did more than three people believe in the gospel during Paul's time there? Yes, absolutely. So why these three? Why does Luke highlight them? We'll kind of get into that first. Lydia. Anybody know anything about Lydia without looking at it? She, she ten, she's come up, she comes up in some of the Sunday school stories. Yes, she's she's a businesswoman, which is a pretty big deal in in the Roman world. Generally, women are kind of in the home. You don't hear about them, but occasionally, some women they get to rise above their 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 normal status. And Lydia is one of them, a businesswoman, and she works in cloths in clothing. But there's something special about it. If you were at the children's message or heard the children's message last week, what kind of clothing does she deal in? Purple clothing. Now, you have to imagine the world back then is not like our world today. People did not look like they do today. They did not wear clothes like we do today. They didn't have the ability to go to Amazon or to go to your local mall that's still open and find different kinds of clothes, some for every season. It was very basic. And if you wanted clothes, your clothes were the color that the materials were when they were put together, which, again, after wearing them for several years and living in the world, most clothes probably looked like the color of dirt. Gross, right? Um, because they can wash them. They have that ability, but they just... they. They don't have washing machines and bleach and Tide to make your clothes whiter than ever. That's the color most clothes were. If you wanted clothes that were not white or were not dirty and dingy looking, you would have to buy special dye. I'm going to turn this off because the light's kind of pulsing and distracting me. Um, you would have to buy special dye, which was expensive. The more expensive, depending on what color. Well, this purple dye could only come from these little um, sea creatures and... I used to know the name of them, and I should have looked it up before class, but uh, I, I forget the name of it. But it's a little sea creature, and they get the purple dye from them. So in order to get those sea creatures in the first place, that's a pretty difficult thing. They don't have scuba gear and you know stuff like we do today. And it's, it's very difficult, laborious, and expensive. And then you have to extract the purple dye and then get enough of it in order to turn a fabric, a material, purple. So purple was associated with royalty, which is, you know, why we talk about it as one of the symbols, uh, symbols, use of that symbol in our pyramids. But not just royalty. Other people could have it too. It's just, it was prohibitively expensive. A commoner would not have dressed in purple. So for Lydia to be a trader, a seller of this, it did not mean that, that she was in the upper class, but she's having a lot of contact with the upper class and probably pretty well-to-do, especially in comparison to most women of that day. So this is kind of Lydia's situation. And how does Paul come across her? How does he find her? Okay. 
So I said, as we're going away from Antioch, we're not as likely to come across synagogues. There, there's a lower Jewish population, but it still seems in their world there are spiritual places. They're, they have their equivalent of church road. And so uh, I don't know exactly what it means that it was a place of prayer, but not a synagogue. It was something more informal than that. But nevertheless, Paul is seeking out these kinds of places. This is where the people are who either believe or have questions, and that's where Paul wants to start. So he finds her, and, and she's there. And uh, what happens during his his time with her? Uh, they go down to this place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, he doesn't say that she was a Jew, but she was a worshiper of God. This is a lot like our guy Cornelius. He he wasn't a full-blown Jew, but he believed in the one true God. He He gave offerings to the one true God. It's like he's on the right path, basically, but just not part of the Jewish people. Maybe because that was not her background, um, family-wise. Maybe there was some other stuff. But this is, for Paul, like the prime person to talk to because she's almost there. Now we just need to tell her about Jesus, the Messiah, who fulfills all of God's promises. And that's what happens. He's talking with her, and the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here, like Cornelius, her conversion isn't just about her. It's a whole household. Um, We don't know how many this entails. Household usually would mean everybody in the house, which is not just children, but servants. And as we, again, put together kind of the picture of her sociologically, the fact that she's this seller of purple goods, that she has her own house, she probably has many servants that work under her as well. So she's very well-to-do, and this, this would include a lot of different people. And what's interesting is that her faith, leads the gospel coming to all of them. Um, we don't know where all of her servants were. We don't know where all of her children were on their own respective faith journeys. But when Paul comes, the gospel comes to all of them. So they didn't have to like measure up and show a certain level of understanding and then I'll baptize you. You can just baptize them. Baptize them as they are and he, he does that. So we've seen this already with Cornelius. Here we're in a very, very different context, way out in Philippi, but that's what happens. So that's conversion story number one. Lydia, but also her household. Now, as we were going to the place of prayer, so they stay at Lydia's house and now they are going back. We're met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Uh, depending on your Bible translation, that spirit of divination, um, some Bible versions might say something slightly different. 
Literally, it talks about having a python spirit. Python, like the snake. Um, this comes from, in Greek, the god Apollo was generally thought of as the god that would um, speak in, in dreams and through um, diviners, those, those kinds of people, that he was the one that would give those kinds of messages. And he was associated with the python, the snake. Um, and in some of his temples, the priestesses who would deliver the messages from the oracle, from Apollo, they were known as Pythian priestesses. Pythian meaning like related to the python. So if you um, have ever had a chance to go to Greece, the oracle at Delphi, Delphi, uh, there would be a priestess that would be in that temple. People would come from all over to that temple to hear the message from Apollo the god, but they don't get to hear the god. They get to hear this priestess. And the priestess would be brought the question, and they would say the answer. But what happened is that they would speak in a language that didn't make any sense because... Um, they were under the influence of, uh, of fumes that would basically make them high. And so they're just kind of mumble jumble. But the priests who worked with the priestesses, they would be the translators of the message. So they, in effect, got to deliver whatever it is that the Pythian priestess said to the people. And if somebody's bringing a really substantial gift to the temple... You're the ones that's in charge of making sure that the message from the God is not going to be a message that angers them. Uh, it's a message that will make them happy. However, they were also famous for speaking enigmatically. That is, open up a fortune cookie and you're like, hey, this could apply to almost anything or mean almost anything. The, they were good at that. So that win or lose, people would say, oh yeah, I guess the oracle was right. It's just we misunderstood what that message was. Well, that's the connection back to this slave girl. She is said to be possessed by this Pythian spirit, this Python spirit from the god Apollo. Remember, we're, we're a long way from home now. We're in the Greek world. We're under the influence of all of those beliefs and values. And this woman apparently is able to tell the future. And tell the future in somewhat accurate ways so that her owners are making a mint off of her. People are coming to this slave girl. To go down to Delphi, that's a long way from where we are right now up uh, in Philippi. Why don't you just talk to this slave girl that I have? She'll tell you what it is that you want. So they're basically exploiting her. Um, but the slave girl's here, and she followed Paul and Silas and us... Luke, uh, around, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing it for many days. Now this is kind of puzzling, because whose side is she on in the big scheme of things? Is she on God's side or not God's side? If she's uh, possessed by a spirit... That's not the Holy Spirit. She's not on God's side. So yet, what is her message saying? 
listen to these guys. Listen to them. They're from the Most High God, and they're telling you the way of salvation. How does that logically work? She's, she's not operating on God's side, and yet she's saying, listen to these guys. You're, you're all listening to me. Listen to these guys. They know the way of salvation. What in the world is happening there? Has Satan lost control of this evil spirit so that this evil spirit is now basically, it's not proclaiming the gospel, but it's pointing people to the gospel. Does that bother you? Is it just, uh, huh, well, that's interesting. A lot of people don't know what to do with that. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily have the answer. Um, but did this ever happen in Jesus's life? Yeah. There, there are multiple, uh, times when demons come up to Jesus and reveal his identity. And especially if you were reading the Gospel of Mark, Jesus would be like shutting them up right away. Like, don't you tell who I am. Um, and in Mark's Gospel, the reason is because he doesn't want people to hear that he's the Messiah because they think they know what the Messiah is. And that's not who Jesus is. That the Messiah is going to be this great king, this great power and leader. But Jesus has come to be the servant, the suffering servant who would give his life for the the sins of the world. And it's only at the cross that you can understand what that means, that Jesus is that Messiah. So that's why he, he wants to silence them until after that. And then you can you can tell that message. So it can be the case that speaking or identifying the truth, the the gospel message here in Paul and Silas, we would think, why would Satan want to verify that? It it could be that this will bring the wrong kinds of people to Paul and Silas for the wrong reasons. Um, it's like, hey, come to the the church of Christ down the street. It has Satan's approval. He wants you to come here, and people are like. Stay away from that place, um, because Satan is pointing. It's it's sort of like reverse psychology that he can poison the waters. Like so, maybe that's what's going on. That um, you you'd think that Satan would want people to stay as far away as possible, but if people somehow think that Satan is in league with God, remember Jesus has that problem too. That, that when he's casting out demons, they're like, oh, he can only do that because he's on their side. So there, there's some spiritual stuff going on here. And again, it, it can be confusing, but it's also, I think, true that when Satan is in the presence of, of God through the Holy Spirit in Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas and Luke and their message, um, Satan recognizes the truth. He doesn't believe it, but he can't deny it. Um, so it's weird. It's out there. But Paul is dealing with this for a couple of days, and then it's kind of humorous. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word. But after she kept doing this for several more days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So an exorcism here, this evil spirit being commanded by the name and power of Jesus to come out of her. 
And we don't specifically hear about her conversion, that she then becomes a follower of Jesus, that she is baptized. But I, th- I think we're supposed to kind of assume that, that that's what happened now that the evil spirit is, is out that she becomes a follower. What we do know for sure is that she has now lost all value to her owners because her value was placed on the fact that she was possessed by this evil spirit that could tell the future, that could tell fortunes, and now that spirit has been cast out. It's not there anymore. And so her owners are really, really angry. They don't deny what happened. They don't deny this power that Paul had to to exercise this demon. They're not worried about following the faith. They're worried about their pocketbook. And their pocketbook just took a serious hit. And so they're going to work to get the crowd against Paul. Not because they're really against his religious ideas, this is religious pluralism, right? And it's not necessarily their ideas are, are bad in themselves because everybody has a lot of weird ideas out here in this, in this time and in this place. So when they come together and start gathering people, they say, they don't talk about the fact that he cast out the demon from the slave girl. They don't want to know this is from purely selfish motives. Instead, they say, we need to get these people out of there because they're Jews and because they are urging us to take up customs that, that are not our normal customs, which is a pretty vague um, attack to make. I think it's the first that really makes the impact. The greater empire was not highly favorable for Jews. That is, we, from a modern perspective, I don't know that... It's right to say it's the same thing, but that that anti-Semitic spirit, that was well in the Roman world and in the Roman Empire. And the fact that we are here in Philippi, there was not a synagogue. There was just this place of prayer. There were Jews, apparently, or people who had the Jewish kind of faith like Lydia, but it did not seem like they were a, a public recognized group here in Philippi. And when these folks call Paul and Silas Jews, this is meant to increase some of those racist uh, cultural ideas that people had against Jews. Because remember, the one thing that separates Jews, yes, they do funny stuff, they believe there's only one God. That was so completely foreign to the rest of the world where it's basically any God, every God. We worship them all. We don't want to offend any of them. And you're telling us none of those gods exist, that they're not real. There's only one God. And, oh, guess what? That God happens to be your God. They they dislike Jews because they just they don't fit into that world despite all of the other weird things that they do. So they're ready to, to, to kill them. And they basically get another mob going, and it seems like that's probably where it's headed. Um, Paul and Silas are beaten. They're jailed. They don't even give them time for a trial. They just mob justice again. We've seen this happen already in Acts. But this time, as they are put in prison, they're going to be dealt with the next day. A great earthquake comes. God's intervention. An earthquake comes. Paul and Silas, they've been beaten. They've been put in the innermost cell, 
like they are the worst of the worst and that they they are going to really get it when the morning comes. But an earthquake comes and opens the jail, opens, releases the, the fetters that have been put on their feet and they're able to walk out, to, to leave that place. One detail, while they're in jail, what are Paul and Silas doing? Singing hymns, praying to God. So even though they've been beaten, probably to the point of almost near death, and that they're put in this dark inner cell and put in those those stocks for their feet, which had to have been very painful and uncomfortable, on top of having already been beaten, they're not cursing those people out. They don't seem to be very worried. They're kind of like Peter was in his cell when he just fell asleep, even though he basically knew the next day he was going to be executed. They're singing hymns. They're praying to God, doing this out loud so that people can hear them. Because when this earthquake comes, the jailer, he's ready to kill himself. An honor thing. Remember, we dealt with this with Herod because when Peter got out of the jail, uh, what happened to the guards that were supposed to be watching them? They were sentenced to death. So you either kill yourself, that's the honorable way, or you will be killed for letting these um, prime uh, criminals get out. So he's ready to kill himself, and Paul says, don't. We're still here. We haven't run away. We're not going to kill you or anything like that. And immediately this jailer starts asking this awesome question. What do I need to do to be saved? And... We don't know exactly where that question comes from, except, well, that slave girl, what was the message that she said about Paul and these guys? They're the ones who are teaching the way of salvation. We don't know what songs, what hymns Paul and Silas were singing, but maybe those were songs of salvation. And so they're hearing about all of this and... It evidently had effect. It had effect on this Philippian jailer, and he wants to know how he too can be saved, and Paul is more than willing to share with him so that they are baptized as well, this jailer and his family. He takes them home, he washes them, but he gets washed. He gets baptized and becomes a part of God's family. And three stories now. So they're gonna, they're gonna be heading out of Philippi after this. But we have the Lydian woman, or her name is Lydia, the businesswoman. We have the slave girl, and now this Philippian jailer. Is there anything that they have in common? I mean, they're, they're from all different parts, walks of life. The slave girl is basically the lowest rung on the ladder. Lydia is pretty high near the top. This, Jailer, he's probably kind of middle class. He used to be a Roman soldier, probably. Retired Philippi was a Roman colony where a lot of the the Roman soldiers were able to retire. And, you know, you've kind of dealt in this business, so it's a nice little part-time job to work at the local jail. Um, they, They come from all different places. And I think Luke is giving us all of their stories to show us this gospel message that Paul and Silas are bringing. It's not... It's not just for a special type of person. 
It's for everybody, and it speaks to everybody. As they all have been moved by the Holy Spirit, as they have been wrestling with things, as they have their own demons, quite literally some of them. But even for those who you look at them and say, this person's at the top of their game. They don't need any extra help. They don't need any blessings from the gods. They have it all together. Well, no, even those people are are worshipers, believers of God, and are more than interested when the word of God is in their presence. They want to listen. They want to hear more. So Luke doesn't tell us why he chose these three. And, and maybe there's more if you kind of think about it and, and look through, you know, what, how are they the same? How are they the different? But it seems to me that it spreads across all of society to remind us of that fact that this gospel, it's not just for Jews, it's not just for Gentiles, it's not just for men, it's not for women. It's for the whole of all people. And Paul continues to bring this message. He's going to move after this to Thessalonica and Berea. We'll cover those quickly before we get into Greece next week. All right, so thanks for bearing with me. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.